Welcome to the e-commerce fuel podcast, the show dedicated to helping seven-figure plus owners build incredible businesses and amazing lives. I'm your host, Andrew Daring, and today on the show, talking about something that been in the news for better or for worse. I'm guessing most store owners are going to say say worse with all the, the the tariff issues coming down the pipe, which is having a big impact on on manufacturers and and uh, and store owners this year. As manufacturing, particularly manufacturing. In the United States, and and if I had to guess, I would say, I would say probably only ten percent, or maybe even less, of the people in our community are manufacturing products, you know, here in in the U.S. If you happen to be in the U.S., uh, and this could be, you know, if you're if you're not in the U.S. but you're, you know, in a Western nation somewhere other than Asia, where a lot of the manufacturing happens, this will probably be fairly applicable. But I, I was chatting with one of our community members. Chris Nelson from the company mcarbo.com. And he mentioned that he's gone through this, everything they make, almost everything they make if, is is made here in the United States. And I want to talk to him about that experience. You know, how does that go? What do the pricing differences look like? How many suppliers does he have to use? Is he able to get the range of things that he needs? And just get a snapshot of what it's like uh, manufacturing stateside, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So chatting about that and, and hope you enjoy it. And a big shout out before we dive into the main discussion to Clavio, who's helping over 15,000 store owners supercharge their email marketing. They've got their Clavio Boss event coming up next week. I'll be there. Really looking forward to it. Let me know if you're going to be there. It'll be fun to meet up. And we've got a meetup for ECF private community members, which you can learn more about in the, the forums in our private community. Clavio's run a very cool contest called the Owned Growth Series where they're asking to hear your stories about how you've grown your business with your own marketing efforts. And you can see their their finalists. There's five of them at clavio.com forward slash owned growth stories. You can vote starting now for your favorite to help them decide who gets a investment in their business and a free trip to Boston. So check out the stories. They're very cool. Again, that's clavio.com forward slash owned growth stories. And if you want to get started with your own email marketing supercharging story, you can do that at clavio.com forward slash ECF. And then secondly, a big, big thank you to the team at Liquid Web. Liquid Web, who has the best place online to host your WooCommerce store. I mean, these guys, they do web hosting incredibly well just to begin with. I host all of my my web architecture there that's not hosted, but it's particularly, particularly great at WooCommerce. They built it from the ground up to help WooCommerce run quickly, efficiently, to scale well, to, to manage all of the WooCommerce and the WordPress backups and all of their upgrades. It's... It's going to make your life incredibly much less stressful, easier and more secure if you're on WooCommerce. So if you want to learn more about their offering and yeah, get some of your time back and and really just enjoy hosting WooCommerce for a change, check them out at ecommercefield.com forward slash liquid web. All right, let's go ahead and jump into my discussion with Chris Nelson. Chris, good to have you on, man. I, I think the genesis and the idea for this came out of a couple of things. One, uh, there's a form that blew up that we'll link to for for community members about manufacturing in the USA. Some really interesting opinions. Some people were very adamant that it wasn't possible. You jumped in and kind of with your experience. And and uh, so that was interesting. And I, like all things, I'm sure there's cases where it makes a lot of sense, cases where it doesn't make sense. And then I think the week, we also ended up seeing each other in person. And I, I had uh, ordered recently a bike rack, a mountain bike rack for my, my vehicle. And it's made in Wisconsin. It's from a company called One Up USA. Phenomenal product, like leading in class, not that crazy. And I think I was blown away because 
the next the day after I ordered it, the guy who was machining it called me on the phone while he was machining it to ask me about a couple, you know, things about how I wanted it done. And I was blown away. And it's so all combination of all these things made me think, dude, we gotta get you on the podcast. And I, I mean a third thing regardless of whether you think it's a politically a good move, bad move, economically good move, bad move, tariffs are like just, you know, increasingly tariffs are part of part of life in the US at least. And so thought it'd be make a lot of sense to talk about making things in the USA, which is something that you guys are, are doing a lot of. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. This is amazing. Yeah, good to have you on, man. And it's you know, it, it, it's really cool too, because you've been a part of the community for a while. And, but you've, did your, well, maybe a little bit later, we'll get into your full journey after we cover some manufacturing stuff. But congrats on, on what you've done, man. Like, I mean, you, I remember when you, you emailed me and, and you wanted to join the community, but weren't quite there yet in terms of revenue. And then now you've, you've, I mean, just, just surpassed that. And it's been cool watching your journey to just to where you started to where you've gone. And so maybe you can tell people just quickly, I kind of mentioned to you at the top, but what do you manufacture? What kind of products do you make in the, in the firearm space? So a wide variety of firearm products. I mean, everything that you could use to take your gun or firearm to the next level, everything from pistol shotguns, rifles, you know, our bread and butter is this folding pistol caliber carbine. So It's a really unique niche firearm, and we've made a ton of stuff for it over the years. We've really built a following, and we've got a great customer base that um, is kind of centered around that one in particular. But good thing about gun owners is they have a lot of guns. Um, They usually come back, and they buy other stuff for their other guns. We got started, we just were really small, and we were doing a lot of just spring kits. So there's nothing really sexy about a spring kit. It's hard to market. You You take a picture of springs, and you can see them on the website. It's just like, oh, okay. That looks like spring. Yeah. Um, but this, and for, for people who don't know, what does a spring pit kit do? So a spring kit will allow you to reduce your trigger pull, which is really cool. And which is a nice thing because if you're a crappy shooter, or even if you are just um, having a hard time in general, and even good shooters like a good trigger pull. So a smooth, clean, crisp trigger pull is much more ideal and is going to really be a great way to help somebody be more accurate, be more consistent. So a big part of shooting is your trigger pull. It's more of a nice, consistent squeeze, not a jerk or a slap of the trigger. So it's one of the primary shooting fundamentals. And a lot of shooters definitely want to do better at the range. You know, there's nothing worse than going to the range and uh, it looks like you took your shotgun that day, but you really took a very <laughs> expensive pistol, you know? So that's a big part of it. A lot of guys want to, you know, improve their game because it is a sport too. And it's people out there just practicing, trying to get good at the skill, at the sport and lightening up your trigger pull is a great way to do it. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, and your background too is, is you were a, a sniper in the, uh, in the Army Green Berets, correct? So like, this is something that you... This is, you know, you know this this field well. It's something you've got a lot of professional, world-class training in. So w- with the manufacturing, like, have you always manufactured in the U.S. from the very beginning? Was it, is it something you always did? No, actually, um, embarrassingly enough. And this is before we were all like, you know, made in America, you know, and everything was, that was a big part of our, our brand. You know, it was, in the beginning, it was just Springs. You know, it was very small. You know, we were lucky to do, it was just me and my dog. And sometimes my wife, we always joke, like she was hired, fired like six different times. Uh, (laughs) So it was just me in the beginning. And, you know, I was like taking a leap into manufacturing and I'd never done it. And I'd always heard about people going to China. And so I did it. I was like, all right, fine. I'll go Alibaba, find some 
supplier in China that could machine me a trigger. So I did. I had a machine a trigger, and sure, sure enough, they were not right. You know, I got them shipped here. You know, they were nice enough those to say that hey, we'll remake them, but unfortunately, the cost to ship them back to China was going to be more than what I initially paid. I mean, it wasn't going to work out financially. I know that. So then I was left scrambling to try to find somebody locally to fix them. And that's how it kind of segued into me, you know, just working just U.S. manufacturers that I could actually be in the time, same time zone with, speak the same language. Obviously, a quick turnaround because I had a huge amount of money, especially when I was only making like $2,000 a month top line you know, back then, it was a significant investment for us because it was about two grand worth of machined parts that were no good. So I definitely needed to get them fixed. And that's how I ended up working with our first local, you know, manufacturer in the U.S. Guy, and, and what, so you're all 100%, everything's made in the USA today, including not just the scope mounts and the machine stuff, but the springs as well. Is everything made in the U.S.? Everything's made in the U.S., yep. How, when you look at a cost differential, and it's going to vary based on, I'm sure, different markets, but when, when you, we'll talk about the advantages in just in a minute, but on, on the downside, at least on the cost savings, how much more does it cost you to make just an average item? Maybe, maybe we can use that, you know, we were just talking about, and maybe we'll, we'll come back to this in a, in a little bit later on. You had a, a new scope mount that you just released. You've been working on it for three years, about 150 bucks or so, I think, that you sell it for now. How much does that cost you to make in the U.S.? And roughly, what would it cost you if you were going to make it in, you know, overseas somewhere? So our cost on that is, you know, it's after, you know, just pure machining cost on that is forty bucks flat, and the plating adds to it at least like a dollar and some change per part, and then the hardware. So it puts us right up to roughly forty-five dollars a piece. And that would be generous. I'd say it's somewhere between 43 and 45, but just to be on the safe side. Yeah, I mean, if we were to do it in China, I would be guessing probably like 50% less than that. So we could probably get them 20 bucks a piece machined. But then you have to factor in the shipping cost too. So I'm sure that's going to add a little bit to it. And you have, I mean, that's your your incremental cost, but I mean, you were talking about the R&D that went into this for three years. So there's a ton of costs you've got to amortize, but just thinking about those, you know, so if someone's listening and they're like, oh, I paid 150 for that, 40 bucks, there's, yeah, three years of work going into it. But so so could you even, I mean, one of the things that we were talking about was with that mount, with that that scope mount, it's a scope mount that folds out of the way so a gun can fold in half on top of each other. And one of the big challenges you said was that you had to be able to design this thing so that it would say absolutely rock solid and wouldn't shift even as much as a hair because that puts, you know, it's, it's a scope and it completely, it's going to ruin your accuracy. So is that something you could do, be able to do in China without, I mean, because it sounded like when you were developing that product, it sounds like there's a lot of back and forth with, with your manufacturer to iterate on that and test it. This isn't working. Maybe you can, was it, is, Am I fair in, in thinking about it like that or, or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it would have been extremely difficult. And that's something I was thinking about today because I know we were going to have this discussion and, you know, we were kind of, and, you know, it's a bit of a uh, sensitive subject clearly in the forum, you know. <laughs> so I was kind of thinking about that today and I was like, well, if you were to make something, you know, fairly straightforward and simple, China would be a home run and probably really repeatable. But if you were trying to essentially R&D and develop something, it may get pretty expensive because we had a ton of iterations back and forth between our you know, primary manufacturer and 
you know, we've built that relationship with them over the last few years. And this project in particular has been the unicorn that we've been chasing since, you know, and since we started manufacturing. I mean, it's definitely one of the hardest challenges we've ever had to dissect and, and develop a solution for. Really satisfied with how well it turned out. I mean, the first time, you know, we had a failed relation, it basically ruined our first relationship with that smaller manufacturer that we started working with here locally that fixed those other Chinese parts. They couldn't even get at that. You know, the tolerance is just so tight. It's the width of a human hair is three thousandths of an inch. So the tolerances on this that we're holding are one and a half thousandths. So it's half the width of a human hair. So such tight tolerances really requires just a lot of diligence. Every little shift can affect some other aspect of the geometry. And it's just, it's so precise. It's just, it makes, makes my head hurt thinking about it. It's been three years of this back and forth, back and forth. A lot of the prototyping and the R&D stuff, it was really great that this shop locally that we work with does this for us because a lot of the money that goes into manufacturing a lot of that cost there's a big fixed cost for the setup for the programming so you have to pay like somebody 30 to 35 dollars an hour to go up and set a machine up and it usually takes them about six or seven hours to program the machine get all the tools loaded and that's where a lot of your fixed cost is and that's why it's so expensive to do like one or two parts you need to do volume at least 500 to get some decent pricing or a thousand or two thousand and that's kind of where we are too with a lot of our parts now is we're doing an order of a thousand or two thousand or sometimes three thousand parts so it definitely helps with the pricing but like this optic mount in particular we did a run of two thousand you know out the gate so that helped get our pricing down and plus we've been working with them long enough that he knows you know we're going to continue to sell these he knows the niche that we're in and how well the other products are doing so he's able to adjust his pricing accordingly and kind of give us a little break there and you think about, I mean, how long was the turnaround time? Let's say, let's say you have the product, you know, there's something wrong. You give it back to them or you tweak the design. They iterate on that and come back to you with another version of the product. How long is that cycle? Because you think about my product design experience is extremely, extremely limited. But in my, in my very limited experience, you know, a cycle can take six weeks from China back and forth by the time you get the product. And so, so what was that cycle like for you? Are you able to do that in, in a week, two weeks, sometimes a couple of days? It just depends on their production schedule because usually they have to take one of their production machines just to do, not only that, one of their biggest bottlenecks is their programmers. So in terms of the speed, the turnaround, I mean, we, so we would make changes on our end here and then we would send over prints to them and then they would have to interpret it and then they would have to basically machine it and then they would have to get it back to us and we would inspect it, test it, and then give them feedback and then the cycle starts all over again. Once we got towards the end and it was like crunch time, it was great because we had them over here, everybody. We had, you know, the programmer, we had the owner of the company, we had our designer here. We had guys from our tech team. I mean, we had everybody together huddled around the table and just hammering it out and we got it done quick. Yeah. When you think about who, if someone's listening to this, who, who, who's a good fit for domestic manufacturing, the areas I've seen it 
seen it to be more common in the US. Uh, machining parts, for example, like that what you're doing, like that bike rack I alluded to is all uh, machined aluminum. This surprised me, but talking to some people, higher end injection molding, there's a place out of Bozeman actually that does a lot of injection molding on site. I think the molds are made in China, but they bring it back here and they and they you know inject it here in the States. And But you think about things like really cheap items. I think someone in that forum discussion mentioned you know, a $6 blender part that is probably going to be tough to make uh, cost effectively in the States. Electronics, I think are a tricky one. Do you, do you think that's a fair assessment? Like, I guess, two part question, do you think it's a fair assessment? And then are there any, what other areas do you see? What other people listening in, in you know, and types of products do you think really make sense to, even though it's, it's more, maybe more expensive, the industry that makes sense to manufacture here, or just the type of product that that tight-knit collaboration without having to fly across, uh, across the ocean make, makes, makes, makes it way more, more applicable for? I think anything easy would be, so for instance, like springs, you know, it wouldn't be any more cost-effective to go to China to do a spring. You know, there's plenty of spring manufacturers in the U.S., and they've been around a long time. There's plenty of little small job shops, machine shops. So, you know, even if somebody had a project they wanted to get started and they wanted to machine, you know, they could find a small shop that would be willing to do small quantities. And that's how we got started. But to answer your question, I mean, I think machine parts, yeah, definitely here. If you were doing springs or maybe you're doing even like wooden dowels, you know, I mean, or even anything like simple would be easy to do here. I don't know if you'd have a ton of cost savings going to China. What about manufacturers being available for you know, just being available in general i think i've reached out in, in in the form threads in my experience people talked about trying to find manufacturers in the u.s who would who would have availability to help them and build their stuff and and obviously the pricing difference but from an availability standpoint it seems like a not uncommon experience to try to call people call factories and shops and say, you know, and get a, hey, sorry, we're busy. We can't take any any work either because they're totally booked up or because they're direct to me, you know, they're, they're totally vertically, in, vertically integrated. A lot of the manufacturing is is in-house and they don't want to subcontract for stuff, which I guess is is not really, a you know, not an option to begin with. But have you run into that? Because that seems like it's been a common problem with finding people who have the capacity and the time to do it of the ones that are out there. Yeah, I've definitely run into that. We had a relatively new manufacturer that we started working with. And, you know, I will say this, and this is what I've noticed from my experience. And we've got roughly 35 plus different manufacturers in the U.S. that we utilize at any one given time for a variety of different products. So one of them in particular, we started with, and they did not like the product because it was difficult to machine. So one of them was... 17.4 stainless steel that was heat treated to H900, which is like a really hard, hard Rockwell. And for them to run their machines through it, it was breaking a lot of end mills and causing them problems. So we initially started off the relationship really well. There was an easy project that I threw them and then they were eager for more. And then we got into that one with the heat treated material and they didn't like it. And I think that's when the relationship kind of fell off. And then I went to reorder again and they gave me some like ridiculous lead time. So it was kind of their nice way of saying no. <laughs> so I didn't stop there. I kept going and I kept, you know, basically finding other manufacturers in the US until I found one that fit and it didn't take me long. But yes, you will run into that, but that's their way of saying, "Hey, I don't want to do your stuff." You know, it's not a good fit. How do you how do you find all of these? I mean, you work with 35 manufacturers, which is a, Surprised me. That seems like a. I mean, that's a pretty wide swath 
of manufacturing partners. So how do you how do you find them? I know like there's a site called makersrow.com, but it focuses more on more on kind of the textile market and the fashion market. There's places like Thomas Net. Are those and maybe you've used those, but anything, any tips you can you can recommend for finding and sourcing manufacturers? Not not just specifically for for your niche in particular, although that'd be great too, but just in general, how do you find these guys? Yeah. So to just to give you an, an idea here, I'll start with a little example. That rubber tube that's on our website, the bolt tube cover, I literally sat down for a full day. And this is all I did for an entire day. And I made phone calls. I made 65 phone calls in one day. And it took me 65 phone calls to find a manufacturer that would be willing to basically laser cut rubber tubing just because of the fumes and everything else. That was the hardest one for me to source, but I knew somebody was doing it because there was a competitor of ours that had a similar product. And I'm like, okay, there's got to be a way this is getting done. So I just... No, so, Chris, sorry to interrupt, but where did you get that list? That those 65, those phone numbers, How where did you find those even to call them? Oh, okay. So Thomas Net, I definitely you know scraped through it and also Google. I just Googled in Thomas Net and you know, I just started going down, you know, the search list there and, and basically calling and asking. And I really got good at my pitch. I was like, I have this material, I need this. And then obviously every conversation's, you know, going to require a print. So I'd usually email them the print as I'm talking to them until I finally found one that was willing and able to do it. And we got the ball rolling, but most of them were all no's, which is good because I want to know right away. I don't want any BS, you know, I don't want to get down the road and then they give me a terrible price or they say, no, it's a 26 week lead time. I mean, at least, you know, they're straight up and they're like, eh, no, not a good fit for us. It's like, all right, thanks. And I'll say, Hey, do you have anybody you would think might, you know, be interested in this kind of work or somebody that might do this kind of work? And that's also helped too, you know, asking for a referral more or less because they know people, you know, they're in the same, you know, they're rubbing shoulders with other people and machining manufacturing. So they would at least be able to give you a, maybe a referral. When do you start thinking about bringing this stuff in house? I mean, you've got a whole product line now and, and granted the the prospects of replicating the capabilities of 35 manufacturing outfits is pretty daunting, I would guess, given, you know, otherwise you wouldn't be 30, using 35 if they, you know, if every, you know, a couple of them could do everything. So, but but how much have you thought about thinking like, hey, here's, you know, like any business, I'm guessing you got 20% of your products doing, all, you know, the majority of your revenue. And you think, well, we could probably invest in some machines, some tooling, bring these in-house. Have you started to think about that? Uh, when does it make sense to, to actually bring that stuff in-house? Because it obviously a huge investment, but down the road, increased margins probably, and, and it's probably increased control. Sure. You know, it's definitely crossed my mind at different times. And... I mean, I'm just trying to be really good at, I guess, one segment of things and, and taking that on, it would it would definitely require a little bit of a redirected focus. Um, I think a lot of our strength is in, you know, the customer service, the marketing, the, you know, the product development. So a lot of the research and development, I've really considered it even a small machine just to do our own little R&D. But then again, I would also need to have, you know, a machinist a very qualified machinist that could do it. I mean, I calculated it and it'd be like 10,000 a month just between the machine payment and then the $35 an hour, you know, uh, programmer that would have to set up the machine. And then that doesn't factor in any of the tooling or anything else, the consumables that may be required, especially if it's somebody that, you know, doesn't do it right. They can easily start racking up a lot of cost really quickly. 
with crappy manufacturing or breaking tools or this and that, breaking a machine, those machines are about 150,000 a piece. So you really are under the gun to keep those things, you know, generating the hourly rate, I guess, is what a lot of them are shooting for. They seem to want to generate an hourly rate on every one of those machines. So downtime on a machine is definitely a bad thing. Maybe in the future, I think we still have a ways to go. Yeah. And you, one thing you mentioned at the top, I'd love to to kind of touch on if you're open to it before we wrap things up here is, I mean, you've grown so much the last three or four years. And, you know, you alluded to me when we were talking before we had recorded that, you know, you've you're still grinding pretty hard, you know, getting up really early in the mornings, you know, 4am sometimes. And, and what has been, you know, what have been the biggest growing pains for you the last, the last two, three years? Cause you've just, you've had a, a pretty crazy journey. Yeah. Just keeping up. Cause once this, once this kicked off, you know, when it was small, it was easy. I was doing everything and had all the, you know, I was wearing all the hats, but then when it started, once it started picking up, you know, you had to start developing systems because you were now hiring people and then you had consistent turnover and now you're retraining people. And it just became this like uh, this really busy cycle of doing the same thing. Yeah, you, you mentioned to me that along with that growth came a lot of things you were investing in and spending in. And you kind of made a comment about how, how you probably could have potentially pared back some of that uh, that spending a bit and probably been okay. When, you know, for what for someone who's listening right now, maybe who's in a similar position, what kind of things would you say, hey man, or hey, you know, hey woman, like you don't have to spend, like if I could go back in time and maybe not spend as much on A, B, and C, what are those things that are less essential that you thought at the moment were super critical that you might go back and and not pull the trigger on? We were growing like crazy. Finally had built up a team of uh, 15 people and, you know, it was good. It was when we were in that space that we were renting, overhead was so low because what I did was I usually started people low, but I said, you know, this is a growing company and there's opportunity. And I also promised people <laughs> quarterly raises because I couldn't really retain anybody anyway. So I was like, eh, screw it. I'll give you a raise every quarter if you're still here. Um, <laughs> the, the, the warm body quarterly raise? Yeah, basically. Because I was, I mean, pretty particular. I mean, in the beginning, it was hard to let people go. You know, that was always hard to learn how to do it. But after a while, you know, it was pretty easy. It was like, hey, you're not meeting the standard. Sorry, I got to let you go the end of the conversation. So I got decently good at that and we went through a lot of people, but finally we started getting some good people. And, you know, I mean, we got to that team of 15, bought some machinery or well, lasers. We bought two lasers and we bought a piece of inspection equipment. And then we also bought another business. There was a competitor that was, guy was retiring. So we actually uh, acquired a business that was 150,000. So we spent a lot of money all at once. But luckily, we had a couple good years before that, and we had spent nearly nothing. So we blew through all of our cash savings, more or less, just to get to this point. You know, Snovis Bank, if anybody needs money, they've been very good. So they're always a good resource, unlike Bank of America. It's hard to say, like, don't scale too fast. But yeah, increasing the overhead is definitely something that you want to be careful of. That's what uh, Dana consistently reminded me over and over again. So luckily, Dana has been so great and keeping me on point. I would have screwed this up a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, it's it's a cool business you've built in terms of what you've done and grown with it, and and uh, despite some of the challenges, and and cool you manufacture everything here in the states. I think that's awesome. And Chris, this has been super cool hearing you talk about uh, just the start of the business and also especially manufacturing in the USA. And yeah, so again, if you're you're listening and you're in, you're in the gun space, want to check out uh, his his site and what they're uh, what they're they've got to offer mcarbo.com that's amazon mary carbo c-a-r-b-o.com best of luck with 
continued growth and product development and manufacturing. And yeah, man, thanks for being a part of the community. It's awesome to have you and, and appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I hope it was, something was valuable in there. If you're listening to this and you own your own e-commerce business, and chances are probably pretty good that you do if you've gotten this far through the episode, you need to check out our private community for store owners. It's a, a vetted group of over a thousand store owners and experienced professionals. And the reason it's different is, is just like I mentioned, it's vetted. We go through and we require all new members have a seven-figure business. They actually have experience in the space. And we go through and we review all applications to make sure everyone's legit when they come in. And then once everyone gets inside, it's not a free-for-all. We, we moderate in ways where if people are being jerks or, you know, behaving inappropriately, we toss them out. If people come in and do nothing but ask questions, we toss them out. We really value experience. We value reciprocity. And it's a place where you're going to be able to connect with other store owners, learn what's working, but also make good friends. Like some of my best friends I have met through this community. And I know that others can say that as well. So if you're interested in learning more and applying for membership, you can do that at ecommercefuel.com forward slash form. That's F-O-R-U-M. And of course, I want to give a huge thank you to the shoe sponsors who make this show possible. First to Liquid Web, who offers the absolute best place to host your WooCommerce store online, a scalable rock solid platform. If you want to learn more about them and how they can supercharge your WooCommerce store, you can do that at ecommercefuel.com forward slash liquid web. And also to the team over at Clavio, who makes email automation incredibly easy and powerful. You can get started for free and test drive their platform at ecommercefuel.com forward slash Clavio. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O. Thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate your time and you following the podcast and looking forward to catching you again next Friday. the ASY Radio Network Live from New York.